morning, men. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you, Matt, for leading us in worship. I really want to talk in terms of of movement, and we're going to be spending some time understanding exactly what my friend Darren Patrick meant in that video of of being a part of a broader movement. Also, as the morning and and, and early afternoon progresses, uh, you're going to see very clearly that God has called each and every one of you to to be pastors within your sphere of influence as, as men who follow Jesus and love Jesus. Big picture. Here's where to go today, and I want to give it to you up front so that you can kind of track our progress and you can kind of keep, um, keep, keep in your heart and be aware of, of where we're at. We're going to focus really on one passage from Ephesians 5. You read it this morning, uh, 22 through 33. We're going to look at three key relationships of what it means to be a man. We're going to look at the man and his Lord, and that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're also going to look at the man and his woman. Uh, if you're married, uh, that woman obviously is your wife. If you're not, uh, not yet married and you, and you long to be and God has that for you, then that woman is out there somewhere. Uh, thirdly, we're going to talk about the man and his church. And again, I think what's poignant from that video is, by and large, the, the church of Jesus in America is, is, is impotent because uh, men who follow Jesus largely are. And if that's where you're coming from this morning and that's how you feel, then, then I've got good news. Uh, ultimately, today's going to be about Jesus. We're here to worship him. We're here to understand him. I want you to think in terms of, uh, of, this, of this image. Maybe, maybe this will be uh, the analogy that really drives our time together. Think, if you will, the Sandia Mountains and the large rock outcroppings. Think of a, think of a spring of water in a kind of a terraced rock setting. The spring of water starts in a first pool. That pool overflows into a second pool. Second pool overflows into a third pool. When we're talking about a relationship with Jesus, we're talking about the spring of who we are. And uh, that's where we're going to begin this morning. That, that if your marriage isn't what it should be this morning, it's a Jesus issue. If our churches aren't what they should be this morning, then really it's a Jesus issue. It's about how we're relating to Jesus. I'm so glad you guys are here. It's so encouraging to look out here and see multiple generations represented. Isn't that cool? Don't you guys like that? Uh, I am so honored to be here. Uh, Two of my very good friends in this city, in this world, are Ryan Kelly, pastor of Desert Springs Church, and Michael Kelshaw, pastor of Trinity in the Marketplace. And to uh, be able to speak and have them present is just a humbling honor. I don't deserve to be up here, guys. You should be here. But uh, I'm thinking maybe you just want to take another weekend off in August, and uh, I'm glad to... (laughs) I'm glad to oblige. We're going to go hard after scripture this morning, and we're going to begin with really understanding our relationship to Jesus and let everything pour out of that. This is going to be about our city. You can look around the room this morning and say, what's exciting about being together is to see what God is doing broadly, that we have relationships together as churches, but this is about a movement of God in our city. Uh, There's other churches and people from other places other than Desert Springs, Mars Hill, and Trinity that... We're glad you guys are here, and we want to serve the churches that you serve as well. Uh, So anyway, I'm excited about today. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but it's going to be focused. Uh, If you're a note-taking person, let me encourage you to do this today, maybe a little bit different. Write down your thoughts. Write down your impressions based on what I'm talking about. I want you to go home today with some some conviction. I want you to really mull over a couple of key things as, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction to your heart as we go through the Word. So... Um, I'm not sure, Los, what we're going to do with this online. Um, I'd like to say some things today, perhaps, that won't go online, but uh, all of it will be appropriate. Um, 
This won't be about eating bacon and watching MMA is, is what it means to be a man. It's too, too much of your disappointment. This is going to be about who Jesus is to us. Uh, so if you're more of the uh, Food Network home, home and garden type guy and uh, you would rather watch PBS than UFC, you're welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about what Jesus means to you as well. Let me pray and we're going we're gonna to jump into the Bible together. Father, you are a good father. It's so encouraging this morning to see a few of our guys with their sons with them and just a picture of a, of a godly dad. Thank you for those dads that are here. Thank you that you trump them. Thank you that you're a father who loves us with all the love and affection you have for your son, Jesus, that it's your love for us that changes everything. It's the beginning point of all that we're going to talk about today in a city. In a city, Father, where the majority of babies, the vast majority of babies that will be born today during the time that we're here will be born without dads. Thank you that you're a father who will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you, being eternal God, humbled yourself and you added to your perfect divinity, humanity. You walk this earth. You live the perfect, obedient, righteous life that none of us, none of the men in this room could ever live. You died the the brutal, shameful, God-forsaken death on the cross, absorbing all the wrath of the Father that each man in this room deserved to die. And you've risen. You are alive today. We worship you today. You're at the right hand of the Father, and you are preeminent in all things. And you're going to come back, perhaps even soon. You're going to come back and you're going to reward those who belong to you with uh, eternal life, with with, uh, eternal existence, knowing you and knowing the Father. You're going to condemn and judge those who don't know you in, uh, in a place called hell for all of eternity. Thank you. Thank you that we can worship you. Let, let, let yourself be the focus of everything we talk about this morning. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Son, for sending the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move in our hearts. We pray that you would illuminate your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would give me careful words this morning, that I would talk with passion about Jesus, that this would be about his agenda and not mine. I pray that each man would be called to repentance today. Not by a sense of of religion, but a sense of response to your great love and the moving uh, and and the surgical work you do on each heart. Holy Spirit, if there's anyone in this room this morning who doesn't know Jesus, we pray that you would breathe new life into dead hearts, that people would leave here today knowing him. There's a lot to be done today, Jesus. We just pray that you would work in us and through us for your glory. We pray that we would leave here transformed. We pray as a result that our homes would be transformed, that our churches would be transformed, and ultimately we pray that Albuquerque, New Mexico would be a different place because you're working in us and through us for your glory. In your good name we pray. Amen. Guys, if you would, turn to Ephesians 5. We're going to look at verse 22 to begin with. Appreciate your time. I wanted to give you and and Los uh, emphasized this, which I think is great. I wanted you to have some context to what we're going to talk about today. We begin with really understanding our relationship with Jesus. And in this, in this image of what it means to be husbands, we get a great picture of who Jesus is to us as the church. Here's going to be the challenge uh, this morning as we look at this text. You're going to find yourself in a few places. You're going to find yourself as a husband 
um, you're going to find yourself uh, as a follower of Jesus. And so let's begin with who Jesus is and how we respond to him. The most basic question we could ask of the Bible. Let's look at uh, Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, excuse me, should submit in everything to their husband. Two roles right off the bat that Jesus has in his church that are going to absolutely define who we are. The first is he's the head. He's the head. He's the focal point. You're going to see the image of a body, a physical body portrayed in this text. And in the biblical concept, the head controls the body. We would agree with that. The nervous system and, and where, it's, uh, where it's kept in the head uh, determines the body. Your head typically, and your, your, your head turns one way, the body follows. The idea is that Jesus is the central leader, the supreme leader, the only leader of his body, the church. And we're going we're gonna to draw out some inferences of what that means in our homes as we talk about our relationship to our wives. But, but I want to I start there. It's the most important place to start. Nothing will make sense today if you don't understand the headship of Jesus. He is the head of the church. It's a tragic thing when the church becomes anything else other than centered on Jesus because he's the focal point. He's the head. He's the one who leads, guides, directs the body. And if, if that's not happening collectively in who we are as the church of Jesus in Albuquerque or who we are as local expressions of that church, who we are as individual men, everything else will get off kilter. So, so let's start there. Let's understand what it means that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Let's look at a parallel passage to understand precisely what that means. Flip over. Flip over a couple books to the book of Colossians. Paul picks up the same concept there so that we can really understand what it means when we say Jesus is the head. That's so profound. Can't look past that this morning. Colossians 1, verse 15. Give you guys a chance to get there. Colossians 1, 15. If you don't have a Bible this morning, perhaps you could look on with somebody. Where's Los? Where did Los go? Is he out at Einstein's yet? Los, are you here? Hi, Los. Nice of you to join us. Um, are there other Bibles for guys who maybe don't have Bibles today? Okay, right back here by the, by the tech booth. There are some Bibles available. If you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to grab one. Perhaps, Lois, if they don't have one at all, they can grab it and keep it. Is that cool? Okay, yeah. Keep that Bible, and you can exchange it uh, for another Bible, a uh, better Bible that you can take home with you later today. We want you to have Bibles. You guys got to have Bibles if we're going to be the men that Jesus wants us to be. Here we go. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're talking about Jesus here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, that's a, that's a big phrase, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you get the concept of the repetition of the phrase, all things? All-encompassing, everything. For Jesus, by Jesus, ultimately to his glory. Here we go, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Same language, same language that we have from Ephesians 5. Here's what that means. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's why. That in everything... 
he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Does that make sense to you? What do we mean when we say Jesus is the head? We mean Jesus is preeminent. What does it mean that Jesus is preeminent? He's supreme. He has ultimate worth. That in all things, and all things are indeed all things, Jesus might be preeminent. He might be worshipped. He might be exalted. He might have ultimate worth. Everything starts there, guys. Everything that it means to be a biblical man really has to do with the preeminence of Jesus. So when we're talking about fighting for biblical manhood, what we're really talking about is that Jesus would be preeminent in all things. And everything that it means to be a man would point to the preeminence and the worship of Jesus. Make sense? Let's think that through a little bit. What does that look like in your own life? What does it mean for Jesus to be preeminent in all things? Here's part of the problem of the culture that we live in. We live in a religious culture, and in religion, you separate things that are sacred from things that are secular. Not so in Jesus. In Jesus, all things are all things, and in all things, Jesus is to be preeminent. So when I'm talking about Jesus being the head of the church, and that he's preeminent over all things, I mean all things in your life. I mean everything. I mean, from who you are when you woke up this morning and and the thoughts that are going through your mind right now. Um, I mean, later tonight, when when perhaps you polish off bacon at home, you know, in the microwave, the microwave kind that you put in for 15 seconds, pre-cooked kind, that is the best kind. You know, when you're eating your fourth and fifth, you're doing it towards the preeminence of Jesus. If you go home tonight and you're inspired and you're repentant and you restore your relationship with your wife and you make love with her, that's towards the preeminence of Jesus. When you gather together tomorrow with um, your local church and you worship and you, you, you listen to the Bible being proclaimed and you, you love and you serve other people, that is so that Jesus will be preeminent. So that every aspect of who you are Monday morning at, at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, whenever you start work, has everything to do with Jesus being the head of the church. It's an act of worship. All of life is an act of worship, and we need to understand what it means to be a man in context of who Jesus, the perfect man, is, that he is preeminent over all things. It has everything to do with your marriage. Guys, it has everything to do with your marriage. Everything you do in marriage, from the most mundane things like um, keeping your accounting records to standing embarrassingly outside uh, Victoria's Secret while your wife shops for her things has to do with the preeminence of Jesus, right? That Jesus would be worshipped. The exciting things like maybe leading your family through a devotional, through a time of worship, explaining to your kids your understanding of Jesus through the lens of scripture, it's about Jesus, but so is teaching them to ride a bike. So this idea that not only is Jesus preeminent in our own lives, he's preeminent in our homes. He's preeminent in our churches. That would seem like a pretty basic concept, right? But how elusive is that really? Had a good friend who recently moved to Albuquerque to plant the church, Nate Bush. He's here on the 
um, West Side, now meeting in the Bosque uh, School. Just started a church, New City Church. Is that right, Los? Yeah. Um, Nate came, and before he planted his church, he wanted to visit as many churches as he could in Albuquerque. And uh, here's what Nate said. Nate said, there are very few churches here that preach the gospel. Now, you need to understand what that means. That doesn't mean that we throw the gospel out there as a tack on in the end of the message. You know, how many times have you been in through sermons and we talk about, okay, if you don't know Jesus here today, here's the part I want you to hear. You need to, to turn and trust in him. Now, now go to, come to the front of the aisle, go to the prayer tent, go wherever you need to go and, and get saved. The gospel is every bit as much for Christians as it is for unbelievers. As you're going to find out today, it's only through the gospel of Jesus that we can be transformed. What my friend Nate was saying is churches don't preach that here. What they ultimately preach is morality. Do this, do that, try harder, do more for Jesus, and he will bless your life. That's sad. That means Jesus is not preeminent, because where Jesus is preeminent, his gospel takes priority. When his gospel takes priority, he's preeminent. If people are simply preaching the Bible apart from Jesus, what they're really teaching is religion, and Jesus won't be preeminent in his church. And I hate to tell you, I love, I love the church in Albuquerque. And there's, there's hardly a pastor in this town that I don't know, that I don't love and I don't invest in. But there aren't many people who actually preach Jesus. So what we're talking about is Jesus being preeminent in all things, beginning with that, that first image of a spring flowing out of the rocks, that first fountain, that first pool, which is, which is our connection with Jesus, that he'd be preeminent in all of our lives. And that would spill over and flow down into our marriages, and our homes, that Jesus would be preeminent there, and that that would then come out and spill over and flow into the church, that when we gather together with other believers in committed covenant relationship, that it would be all about Jesus. And what about our city? Wouldn't it be exciting if Jesus was preeminent in tangible ways in our city? I love this city. I was born here. I was raised here. Uh, these are my people. I, I love this city. But I have a love-hate relationship with this city. We had friends in town again this week from um, Mars Hill in Seattle. Spent the week with us. And, and there, are, there are fun things to show them. We went up to the crest and we hiked behind the mountains and the temperature dropped, you know, 30 degrees. It's wonderful, like Alaska back there on a cloudy day. Um, beautiful. Went up to Santa Fe. But, um, but there's ugly things about our city, too. There we are in Santa Fe. We're about to go to Loretta Chapel, show them the spiral staircase. Two girls jump out of a car and begin to fight with each other at a stop sign. Okay, hey, that's New Mexico, right? That's who we are. You live here long enough. We're pretty ghetto. I mean, we really are. Um, do you realize that we have a crime rate here that's higher than New York and L.A.? Do you realize that here in, here in the Duke City? Do you realize that there, as I alluded to in my prayer, that there are more babies born without dads than, than, than with dads here? And we're about 17% higher than the national average especially if you begin to break that out according to ethnicity. Uh, in the Hispanic culture, that's almost 60% of children born without babies. If, if you're native, and we so, need, uh, we so need native guys to not only make our bodies um, stronger, we also need to send them out to native people to be indigenous leaders there. If you're from the native culture, it's about 80% of babies born today are born without dads. We have an overflowing prison system. It's a messed up town. Wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus began a work that started with men understanding his preeminence and that spilled over into homes being transformed 
uh, men acting like men should by the grace of Jesus. Homes were transformed, and his homes were transformed. Churches were transformed, and his churches were transformed. Our city was transformed, and a movement swept across the city where Jesus was powerfully working according to his gospel that he might be preeminent in all. Wouldn't that be cool? You know, I have this dream that, that one day, is, is uh, one of the things we're facing at Mars Hill right now, and I know other, other churches are facing this too, is we're, just, we're, we're, we're seeing young men come to meet Jesus. And, and uh, we're seeing families, large families. You guys are very reproductive dudes. We're seeing your large families fill our space. We need more space. Wouldn't it be cool if the Bernalillo County Detention Center called us up and said, hey, we want you to come start a church in the can- on, our, on our property? And we said, well, that's a good idea, bringing church to the jail, right? You want us to, you want us to, you want us to tell your, your, your guys about Jesus? And they said, no, we, don't, we, we have extra space now. Guys aren't in prison. In other words, guys are, guys are transformed by Jesus, and there's, we don't need the prison space. Why don't you come do church here? Wouldn't that be cool? That's what it looks like when a movement happens. That's what it looks like when Jesus is preeminent. Let me let you in on a little secret that you maybe not have figured out yet. There is a movement underfoot right now in the United States where that's exactly what's going on. I I have the joy of being a part of the Acts 29 network, and we see it every day. We we see it all the time. Young men, uh, ages 18 to 34. As a matter of fact, let's just see a sampling of the room this morning. If you are, if you are, this is going to, this is going to be. This is going to test our truthfulness and our humility, all right? If you're 35 years or younger this morning, why don't you just stand up? Go ahead and stand up. Isn't that awesome? All right, go ahead and sit down. Go ahead and sit down. Do you know what that is? That's the equivalent of the silvery minnow or the Mexican gray wolf. That's an endangered species. (laughs) It's exactly what it is. That is an endangered species. 18 to 35-year-old dudes don't go to church. And so when they do, you have to wake up and say, okay, Jesus is at work because this can't be explained. Doesn't mean the rest of us that are outside of those demographics, and I'm now well past that demographic, don't have a role to play, but Jesus is at work. And we see it all the time in the Acts 29. Network. It's not exclusive to Acts 29. It's going on around the country. You guys need to be encouraged by that. But I think what's exciting about this new movement is it has a God-centered theology. Jesus is the focal point. And people are, are, are understanding, based on who Jesus is, what it means to be a man. And it largely is a movement of young men. It's, 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 it's amazing what's going on right now. And we want to see Jesus continue to do that here in Albuquerque. So as we begin to understand our relationship with Jesus, the first role in which he's identified, according to this text, is he's preeminent. He's the head of the church. Look at the second title he has. Back to our text. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its what? Savior. He's the Savior. Jesus is not only head or Lord, he's Savior. He's the one who is God's ultimate remedy to the greatest problem that humanity ever faces, and that is our sin problem. Jesus came to save us from sin. Jesus is the Savior of the church. He bridges that chasm that exists between us and a holy God. Our common ancestor, Adam, sinned so that you and I are born guilty before God. We are sinners both by nature. Every bent, naturally, of our heart is away from God. 
and by choice, we gladly embrace that nature and we sin. That's what you're going to see today is you sin well. One of the things we do well is, if you want to pat yourself on the back, we are really good at sinning because it's who we are by nature and by choice. So for anything good to happen in our relationship with God, Jesus has to change us from the inside out. We need a new nature. We need a new heart. And Jesus is our Savior. He's our Savior. He's the one who's come to remedy our sin problem, which is the greatest problem we'll ever have in relating to God. Now, how has he done that? Let's look at the text further. Pick up with me in Ephesians 5, verse 25. We're going to focus on the husband part here in our second session together this morning. So just hold off on that. Keep that in the back of your mind. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's how he saved us. He gave himself up for us. Let's read on. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, I don't want to get into too much discussion on what that phrase, washing with the water and the word. One of the cool things that's going on in our movement is we have people who come from a Baptistic background, and that's where, that's where I fit. I, I believe the New Testament teaches believers' baptism, and we have people that come from a covenantal perspective that, that uh, sprinkle and dunk babies. And we love you guys. I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong, but we're going to love each other anyway. So, so what does this phrase mean? Okay, there, there's, it, it's, it's ambiguous in that it has a couple of concepts. One is, as we're talking about husband and wives, it was very common in the ancient world for the bride before she was presented to her husband to go through an extensive bridal bath. You know, you can think like a day at a spa probably, you know, and probably many of your wives did the same thing. Too bad you didn't. You know, it would have been nice. She was probably just happy you showered before you showed up for the big day. But um, so, so she would go through an extensive cleansing so that she would be presentable. So she would be presentable to her husband. So So that's one concept, but it's clearly a concept of baptism. You just can't frame it any other way. And this concept that baptism is is reflective of of the washing of sin, I don't think anyone in this room uh, would say that it's meritorious, that in and of itself it provides grace. But I think we'd all agree what does is the word. The word is the gospel, the finished work of Jesus. He lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died in our place on the cross to absorb the death. And because he's raised from the dead, the Father's stamp of approval is upon him that his sacrifice was sufficient. He became sin that we might become his righteousness. Okay, That's what we're talking about. And, and baptism signals, signifies that. So, big picture again. Jesus is the savior of the church. How did he save the church? By giving himself up. As, as the perfect blood sacrifice, that we might be cleansed. This is when the light went off for me as, as a young man. I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. We went to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter, mainly because my grandma, who um, kind of the spiritual matriarch of the family, invited us to come, and we went. It was also incentive that she took us to the Albuquerque Country Club afterwards. Uh, we went to her church, First Presbyterian. I have to be honest with you, as a little kid, it was kind of creepy. You know, the big pipe organ. If, if you look at all kids' literature, anytime there's a pipe organ, it's an evil character. Have you noticed that? You know, have, have, you, have you watched the different shows, you know, whatever it is? Uh, even Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, it's, it's just, it's evil. The pipe organs are evil. You know, and it's one of those places where it was, 
it was people wore robes and it was formal. I didn't know what language they were speaking. You know, I think I heard the song that the Lord is in this place. It's really spooky. You know, that kind, that kind of a context. That was the extent of my, my Christianity. And uh, as, I, as I moved into Hayes Middle School, any, any Hayes folks here this morning? Uh, yeah, all right. We're the survivors, man. We made it through. Uh, went, to Hayes, went to Hayes Middle School and, and was in, I don't know what it was called back then, a gifted program, which I don't, I don't think I am gifted technically. But anyway, I got into that program, and there are a lot of lectures and, and discourse. And our teacher taught us how religion is bad, that religion is really the source of wars and world issues. And to me, Christianity just fit perfectly into Yeah, I get it. It's just another religion. It's just another human effort to make things right with a God that may not exist, right? That's the issue of religion. That's what religion really is. Religion is our effort to do enough good things and to avoid enough bad things so that we're right with God, so that he'll love us. Then I came across this concept, that Jesus is the savior of the church and he loved the church and he gave himself up for the church when, according to this text, And the church was filthy and dirty and needed cleansing and needed to be washed. When I began to see God in that light, according to the Bible, that that God didn't wait for us to get our lives in order, but instead God became human and, and he lived the perfect life and he died in our place so that we might be cleansed, and then the rest of our life would be one of obedience, not so that God would love us, but because he already has in Jesus, the heavens opened up. I got it. I got it. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. That's going to have everything to do with not only your relationship with Jesus, but the way that you guys love your wives. Okay, that's the point we're going to get to in a minute. So Jesus is not only the head, he's preeminent in all things, but he's also the savior. Namely, he gave himself up that he might cleanse his bride. Follow this thought out. So that, this is verse 27, another so that, pay attention to so that's in the Bible. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy And without blemish, there was a so that to it. It wasn't just to put her through this ritual bathing, but it was so that she might be holy and blameless. So that he might have a beautiful bride. I want you to see that. This may be the most confusing issue I hear out there today in modern evangelical teaching. Here's the big picture. Jesus saved you, not solely that you would have fire insurance when when hell is opened up. He saved you with a bigger purpose than that, that he might make you holy and blameless. So here's what the Bible teaches. If you claim to be in relationship with Christ, and you are at the most foundational level a Christian, which means you're united with Christ, you should be changing. Your life as men should be coming more holy and blameless. Perhaps not perfectly, but there should be transformation present. Because if there isn't, guess what? You don't know Jesus. And here's what the church has done. The church has taken these two concepts of Jesus as head, Jesus as preeminent, and Jesus as Savior, and it's separated them out. 
and it's made it almost like a progressive dinner party. Hey, first what you need to do is you just need to understand that Jesus saves you so that you can intellectually agree with the facts of the gospel, meaning that Jesus, do you believe Jesus existed? Yeah. Do you think he was sinless? Yeah. Do you think he died for your sin? Yeah. Good, you're saved. No, you're not. You're not. Not according to the Bible. Salvation isn't something you wake up one day and decide to do. It's something that God does in you. The Bible teaches that everywhere. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, unless a man is born again, he will not even see the kingdom of God. And so an appropriate response to the gospel, we're going to talk about this in just a minute, is not only a response to Jesus as Savior, but also Jesus' as head. And there's many people, many men, we're going to talk about men. There are many men that I see in this city every day who have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, agree intellectually with, with, with a set of truths, but don't know Jesus. How do I know that? Because they're not being transformed. There's no progressive holiness. Not perfect holiness, I'm not teaching that. But you should be moving and growing and changing so that you are becoming more blameless and spotless and holy. Let me give you an example. Um, Pastor Michael and uh, Los Grego and Pastor AJ from Mars Hill and I were having lunch at McAllister's when, when, when Los is kind of the, um, the brainchild behind this, this, this event today. And so if it goes well, thank him. If it goes poorly, blame it on me because it was a good idea. I've, I just didn't execute it if it goes poorly. But um, we're, we're sitting at that table and the idea pops up, and all of a sudden, Lo says, will you lead in this day? And Michael is quick to say, yeah, why don't, why don't you do it all? <laughs> now, seriously, he, here's, <laughs> love you, brother. Actually, actually, I do really appreciate that. That's a, that's a deep, uh, that actually is a, something that means very much to me that he would say that. But here's who I am, naturally. My greatest fear is public speaking. My, my, maybe one greater fear I have is that somehow today we're going to break up into teams and come up here and do skits, you know. Hey, <laughs> let, let's, let's get teams of five guys and let's act out a wedding scene where, where you have Jesus and the church, you know. I hate that. Man, I, I hate youth pastors. Don't they just, they just dream of these things. <laughs> That's like my greatest fear. Just kill me, you know. Um, let me go die for Jesus in some foreign place before I do that. So, so here, here's what's at the heart of that, though. Here's what's at the heart of that fear. I think a lot of myself, honestly. And my greatest fear is I'm going to come across as stupid or embarrassing, or I'm going to let somebody down. So if we would have had this conversation at McAllister's 25 years ago, which we couldn't have because it was just a Mesa then, or it was St. Pius High School. Some of you remember that. would have been the cafeteria of St. Pius High School, which would have really been interesting for three Reformed guys to be in a Catholic high school. But nonetheless... <laughs> for accounting AJ. Uh, he might have gone to a school like that. Nonetheless, uh, I would have said, no, I, I don't know. I don't want to get up in front of people. And, and so what's happened as I've met Jesus is he is continually putting to death this idol of Dave worship that exists in my heart that says, I don't ever want to be in an uncomfortable situation because I don't want to look bad. I love and worship myself to that extent. I'd rather be silent in a corner and not embarrassing myself than get up and have to say something in front of people. I'm growing. Are you growing this morning? Are you growing? Can you look at your life and say, yeah, I get it. Jesus' purpose in saving me was to ultimately present me along with his entire body, his entire people to himself, holy and blameless. Because if you're not growing, 
and you're stuck and there's no progressive holiness and blamelessness transpiring in your life through the finished work of Jesus, you don't know him. Let's just be frank with each other. We're men, right? That's what we do. We're blunt. We come home and we answer our wife when she says, how was your day? Fine. Do, you, do I look fat in this dress? Yes. You know, that's just who we are. Why can't we be that honest about our spiritual life? Some of you don't know Jesus. Oh, yeah, you, you, you've prayed the prayer. I hear you. You walk the aisle. You intellectually agree with these facts, but you haven't experienced the gift of God's grace, which is an entirely new identity. Hang on. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about what we can do next. Here's, where the, here's the other big light that went off for me. Verse 28, we'll come back to the husband part, so lock that away. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, circle that word, and cherishes, circle that word, we'll come back to those next talk, it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. That's profound. Do you hear that? You see what Paul just did by analogy? He says, hey guys, you should love your wives because he who loves his wife ultimately loves himself really well. And who we should look to to understand that concept is Jesus who loves us. Why does he love us? Because he loves himself. Do you see that? It's just bold right there. That's where it comes together. That's where you begin to understand the love of Jesus and ultimately the power for transformation that's encapsulated in his love because his love for you and me, that he would love us when we were dirty, that he would take us through his finished work on the cross, he would clean us up, and he would progressively make us more like him, has everything to do with not only his love for us, but his love for himself because ultimately what he's doing, he's giving himself a gift that radiates and reflects his glory. And if you don't get that piece, then Jesus will never be preeminent. I remember when, when, this, when this concept first jumped out of the Bible, and literally it's everywhere. You're going to see it from here on out as you read the Bible if you haven't seen it yet. I, I was coming back from a pastor's conference. It was called uh, the Moody Pastor's Conference. No joke. It was at Moody Bible Institute. That was the name for Moody. But I remember wearing this shirt around, and people like seeing it that were church-going. People like Moody Pastor's Conference are like, yeah, I need to send my pastor that one too. You know, like he's, Wow. I think he's menopausal right now. You know, it's, perhaps he's menstruating. I'm not sure, but he is in a bad mood. He needs to go to the Moody Pastors Institute. Um, coming back from that, flying and from right over St. Louis, Missouri, and it was uh, late May, and there was this brilliant uh, at night, brilliant uh, Midwestern thunderstorm going on, and the sky was flashing, and I was sure the plane was going to go down. I picked up a book that John Piper had edited, uh, Jonathan Edwards, The End for Which God Created the Earth. I think the title is God's Passion for His Glory. And I read this, and all of a sudden, I got it. I got the love of Jesus for us. Here's what Piper says. He, he draws out these implications of what Edwards was trying to teach through the Bible. And he says this, The love of God for sinners is not his making much of them, but his graciously freeing them and empowering them to enjoy making much of him. Isn't that interesting? 
that God's love for us and Jesus' work for us doesn't necessarily rest and stop on us, but it returns to him. That's what this text is saying. As Edward says, God is their good. Therefore, if God would do us good, he must direct us to his worth, not ours. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is doing in your life today if you're a Christian. It's what he's doing. He's transforming you. He's given you a new nature based on his finished work, based on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that in just a minute. And in this new nature, he's making you into a man who thinks, feels, speaks, and acts like him. That he might give to himself a replication of himself that he might be glorified. So his love for you and his love for his glory are one and the same thing. And that, that inspires me. Because it means it doesn't rest on me. Don't get me wrong, I have a role of response in this process of transformation. But ultimately, the work is his. And that work is tethered by his desire to glorify himself. And because the Bible speaks everywhere that God is ultimately about his glory, then I'm sure it's going to get done. It may be slower than I want, and it's certainly slower in your life than I want, all right? But but it's going to get done. It's going to get done. Do you see that? should be exciting to you this morning. Jesus isn't about making much of you. He's about something much greater. He's about making much of himself. And his love for you is towards that end, that he might transform you, give you a new nature, then progressively, as long as you have years here on earth, and ultimately in glorification, when either he returns or you die or you're transformed, you're going to be fully like Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And if that's not present in your life, then I have to tell you, neither is Jesus. You don't know him. How do we respond to Jesus? We'll close this talk here. Let's go back to verse 24. What do we do? Man, this is going to be super freeing for you today. This doesn't make sense you might as well go after this session because everything else will just be religion and rules and boring. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How do we respond to Jesus, who is preeminent, He's ultimate in everything. All of life is an act of worship to him. And he's our savior. He's taking away our sin problem. Positionally, he's totally taken it away. And practically, we're working that out with him day in and day out by his initiative so that we might worship him. What do we do? We submit to him. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to paint a picture of the way that your wife should be relating to you today. What does submit mean? It's a compound word. There's two words that make up the, the one word submit that's translated to us in English. One, one, is, uh, one, is, one is a big word that means overall, and the other one is to mean to make order. So here's the concept. It's a military term. Guys, that should excite you as guys. What does it mean to be the bride of Christ? Do I wear a dress? Do, do I sing the cheesy songs I hear on K-Love that are prom songs to Jesus? Um, Because quite honestly, that creeps me out just a little bit. 
I'm trying to become more confident in my identity in Christ and be comfortable with this idea of being the bride of Christ. It's a military term, all right? It's a military term. What the church is to do is to order all of her life. What we're to do as men is we're to order our life under Jesus. That's what it means. That's what it means. That means all of my life in every capacity is to be lived under the leadership of Jesus in a loyal love relationship. See, that's cool. That's cool to me because I can follow Jesus that way. That way resonates with me as a man that he is my captain. He is my Lord. He is my king on a, on a white horse with tattoos on his thigh, leading the battle charge. And I'm to follow him. I'm to order my life around him and follow him as one who is worthy of my ultimate loyalty. That's who he is. That's good news. Here's the bad news. I don't do that. Sorry. That's not how I roll. Because even though I'm new in Christ, there's this residual old part of who I am that still resists God at every turn that would rather go back and be non-skit performing, non-speaking Dave who worships Dave. So how do I do that? Let me show you how real quick. We're done. Look up a few verses before. This whole section is kicked off by a concept. This whole section that will flow into the end of, uh, well, to the beginning of chapter six by this that we always kind of freaks us out. 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The Bible teaches the freedom to consume alcohol, but no one is free to get drunk, and no one is free to make his brother stumble. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with a spirit. In other words, be being filled with a spirit. It's a passive concept. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is huge. Here's what the Bible teaches. That when by God's grace you're regenerated, You transfer from death to life because of God's unmerited free gift. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Bible refers elsewhere to the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is the Spirit of Jesus. The the Holy Spirit changes you from the inside out. When God decided to do something new that he called the New Covenant, remember this? In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet of Jeremiah, he says, no more external religion. From here on out, here's what I will do. I will put my law on their heart and they will obey me from the inside out. Everybody will intuitively know the Lord under this new covenant because I will do an inside out work in them. And the guarantee, the guarantee of what God is doing is the Holy Spirit. That's what Ephesians 1, I think 12 talked about, maybe 9, I can't remember. Ephesians 1, he's our deposit, he's our promise, he's our guarantee. So we have the Holy Spirit working in us. And in his power, we, 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 we are filled with the Holy Spirit that we might continually be living in a submitted relationship to Jesus as head and Savior. Now, here's the question that always falls. How, how do I do that? I don't get that. That still is cool. I understand the idea of don't drinking wine till you get drunk. That makes sense. But I don't know what this means. Let me show you what it means. We're going to look at a parallel passage. Colossians 3. Almost exact same wording. 
Colossians 3.16. Oh, you guys got to get this. Christian guys, you got to get this. Unbelieving guys, you got to get this. This is, this is everything today. Nothing goes from here if we don't get this point. So we need to, we need to stay here till we get it. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thongs. That would be bad. No spiritual thongs, guys. Spiritual songs. Wow. Wow. Some of you just got some really bad ideas. With thankf- No tweeting that. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. That could cost me my job. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Exact same wording or close thereto to what it means to be filled with the Spirit. But what's the difference? What's the difference? It's in subject. What is it? Instead of be filled with the Spirit, what is it? Let the word of Christ dwell in you. So, So which is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it the word of Christ? What is the word of Christ? Literally, it means the word about Christ, which is the gospel. Which is it? The answer is yes. Yes, it's both. It's both. Do you get that? It's both. When the gospel takes root in my heart, the Holy Spirit and the gospel are a powerful epoxy. Okay, they work hand in glove together. They work hand in glove together. So when I believe the gospel and my appropriate biblical response to the gospel is two things. It's repentance, and we'll explain that in just a minute. It's turning from sin and trusting Jesus, and it's faith. Trusting in him is enough. So it's turning and trusting, and that's repentance. The Holy Spirit works, and he transforms me. Because here's the problem. It was one they faced in Galatia. Last passage, and we'll, we'll stop there. Galatians 3. Go to the left this time of Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Listen to this. This is exactly what some of us are doing today in Albuquerque. It could just be, oh, foolish Albuquerqueans, oh, foolish New Mexicans, oh, foolish 505 people. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's the key question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the obvious answer? Hearing with faith, right? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let's stop there. Here is the problem everywhere Christianity has sprung up. It's in the human heart to be religious. So people look at what Jesus has done for us and say, thank you, Jesus, that was really cool. We'll take it from here, and we're going to try harder, and we're going to do more so that we can obey you. That's exactly the Galatian problem. It's exactly the problem that are in most Albuquerque churches today, and it's exactly the problem that resides in your own heart. And what Paul is saying is, don't go back there. This isn't about what you do for God. This isn't about a pastor standing before you and giving you five tips to a better marriage. Bathe. Have a job, give roses, take out the trash, feed the dog, everything will go great. That's stupid. That's foolish, according to Paul. That's going back and trying to make our marriages better on our own effort, in our own strength. But instead, we're to let the word of Christ, the gospel, go deep in us. We're to let the Holy Spirit do his thing in us. And the way we do that, according to this text, is by hearing with faith. 
The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's works. And some of you are approaching Jesus religiously, and that will do nothing else than other than giving you a miserable path on your way to hell. I've been to men's conferences many times before, and that's what I heard. Do this, don't do that. Here's some cool tips. Here's some good ideas. It's about Jesus and his gospel. The problem this morning in your marriage, in your church, in your life, in our city, is your heart. And the only way to your heart is the double-edged scalpel ministry of the Holy Spirit and the gospel. So we need to repent. And I'm going to explain that in our next session, exactly what that means. And we turn back to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, by your person and your work, through your spirit, change me. I believe you. I believe what you say is true. I believe you've already done this thing in eternity past, and now it's just a matter of me living it out. Here's the essence of salvation biblically. God the Father decreed it. It's called predestination in eternity past. God the Son achieved it, his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection. God the Spirit then does what? He applies it. That's how simple Christianity is. But sadly, we're more about religion. And we're about repentance. I really want to call you out on that this morning. Three things for you guys to think about as we go to our break. Some of you are, some of you are, are, are worshiping Jesus as an idol. And that's going to sound, how can Jesus be an idol? He's, as we just saw in Colossians 1, he's preeminent. Here's when Jesus becomes an idol. When he becomes an, a means to another end. Right? Then you're, then, then you're using Jesus. If Jesus is preeminent, he's the ultimate end in all that we do. Some of you are here today, and I want to call you out now so you have time to think about it and repent. Some of you are here today because you want to use Jesus that you might have a better life and a better wife. That's why you're here. You're an idolater. You're using Jesus. I can't promise you either. But here's what Jesus promises. Turn from sin. Trust me according to my finished work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and you'll get me. You'll have me. And I'm of far greater worth than a happy life and a happy wife, okay? That's what Jesus says to you today. Stop using me towards other ends, but understand that I'm the ultimate end. Your life may progressively get worse. For some of you guys in this room, that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to get worse. But you get Jesus. And a bad life with Jesus is better than a good life without him. Some of your marriage is going to get worse. You're going to go home tonight. You're going to be a changed man. You're going to come to your wife, and she's going to say, are you drunk? Go home. You know, what, what happened? I, I, don't, I don't receive your transformation. It's going to get worse. But you're going to get Jesus. Can we agree on that, man? This is all about Jesus. Can we do that? Can we be together on that.